This morning we're going to take a break from our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Matthew and begin a series on the topic of divorce and remarriage. This uh, series arises out of the Sermon on the Mount, and in particular Jesus' words there in Matthew chapter 5 and verses 31 and 32. So we'll be taking this detour for a little bit. Beloved, I don't think there's anybody in this room that hasn't been touched in some way by the pain of divorce. For some, it's very up close and personal. For others, it's perhaps through a family member or even a close friend. I don't need to cite the statistics for you to know how widespread this problem is and how many feel its devastation. Really, in response to the size and the scope of the problem, our society is rapidly coming to the conclusion that a monogamous monogamous lifetime marriage between a man and a woman is neither possible and in many quarters desirable. This is the world we live in. Unfortunately, the evangelical church has lost her moral authority to a large degree with regard to this question. We have failed to take the log out of our own eye before we have tried to speak to our culture, and we come across in many ways as judgmental and unfeeling. I've asked Pastor Vince to uh, join me in this series. We're actually going to to be alternating as we address the topic. The reason I did that is because he has been doing some very good work down in the Sunday school class at 9 o'clock, the Generations class, in Paul's letter to the church at Corinth and his work in uh, 1 Corinthians 7 where the Apostle Paul deals with this topic, I thought we would all benefit from his study of that. So he's going to be joining me along the way. Our desired approach to this topic can be summed up in three words. The first is instructive. The first word is instructive. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. We will be examining the entire Bible with regard to this topic. We will not confine ourselves only to the New Testament but we will also be looking at what the Old Testament has to contribute. This will enable us to develop a a more fully-orbed understanding of the subject at hand. It will better enable us to derive principles that can be applied to various scenarios where the Scripture does not specifically address the problem at hand. The only way we can do that is to find out what God has said in both the Old and New Testaments. So instructive. 
The second word that will, by God's grace, sum up how we want to deal with the topic is the word compassionate. Compassionate. Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14, the psalmist writes, Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. God understands human frailty. All divorce involves sin. But not all divorces are sinful. You're going to hear me say that a lot over the next few weeks. All divorces involve sin, but not all divorces are sinful. And it will be important for us to try to make that biblical distinction. We could say that divorce is the nuclear option. It's the last resort. It's what happens when all else has failed. It's not the place we go first, but it is sometimes a place that people go. As we teach on this subject, I want to acknowledge right up front that the Word of God will wound. The Word of God wounds. And it wounds as it exposes sin. For some people, the sin will be their self-righteous and judgmental attitudes towards those who have been divorced. For others, it will be their disobedience with regard to the topic. And for still others, it will be their failure to actively and biblically love people who are caught in the heartache of this tragedy. The Word of God will expose many things. Our God is compassionate. Our God is understanding. And our God offers hope for the future. And it is my prayer that as we present this material that we will have the same heart of compassion that our God has with regard to these matters. That's the attitude that we come before you this morning. Instructive, compassionate, and third, redemptive. Redemptive. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is the cross of Christ that alleviates the condemnation of sin. And so thus, it is our desire to present the material here in a redemptive way. What I mean by that is to point people to the cross of Christ and his suffering and death there as a satisfaction for sin. And as it says in Colossians, that there, the certificate of debt, that which we owed God under the law, has been nailed to the cross, and we bear it no more. Redemption. We have redemption, beloved, from 
sin through Christ. Is it true? Amen, it is true. And divorce is no different. Where there is sin involved, there is redemption and forgiveness available at the cross of Jesus Christ. That is our hope for all of us. We're planning the series to be five weeks in length. Five weeks. It's our desire to hear from you along the way. Never done this before, and we'll see how it goes. So I am offering to you my email address and cell phone number for those of you who like to text. And I invite you to to direct your questions, your comments, your observations along the way to me at my email address or my cell phone by text. And we will make every attempt we can to answer those questions, to work the answers to those questions into the series. The five-week series will be broken up in the following way. This morning we will ask and answer a series of questions as we address the topic, what God says about marriage. So we will begin with, what does the Bible say? What does God say about marriage? Next week, what does Moses and the prophets say about divorce and remarriage? Third, what does Jesus say about divorce and remarriage? Fourth, what does Paul say about divorce and remarriage? So we will work our our way through the Scriptures, beginning this morning in Genesis and carrying through. Our final message, the fifth Sunday, is entitled Repentance, Redemption, and Reconciliation. It will be there that we will talk about where do you go from here if you find yourself in this difficult situation? It'll be a message of redemption. It is very important that you be here for all five messages. And the reason that is important is because they will build on themselves. Each message will presume an understanding of that which has gone before. We're trying to build a biblical theology of this topic. And so it's necessary to do it this way. We're going to try not to do it like a seminary class, but it's likely to be more teaching-oriented than more traditional preaching. If for some reason you cannot be here, they will be available on our website, and I suggest you hear it before you come back the next week. It will help you. So are you ready? Okay. This morning I want to ask and answer three questions. Ask and answer three questions concerning marriage so that we will have a proper understanding and appreciation for this good gift from God. So I'm going to structure it around three questions. Just going to ask the question and then we're going to develop the answer to the question. Okay? So, question number one. What is marriage all about? What is marriage all about? In order to answer this question properly, we need to go back in the Scriptures to the very first marriage. 
And so I invite you to open your Bibles and turn with me back to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. This morning we will be looking at verses 18 through 24. Marriage is God's invention, not man's. It is God who has designed marriage and he has given it to humanity from the beginning before the fall into sin. It is what we call a creation ordinance. That means that it is given by God to humanity and it is valid and binding upon all of humanity whether they recognize it and accept it or not. It is God's good gift. It is God's design. If we are to understand it properly, we must understand it as he has designed and revealed it. And so we find ourselves here in Genesis chapter 2, eavesdropping, as it were, on the first marriage. Let me read the text for you, beginning in verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. They shall become one flesh. Verse 24 says, For this reason we have marriage. For this reason the man leaves and is joined to his wife. What reason? We have to look into the text. It points back to verse 18. Verse 18 is the answer to the question, for what reason? Now, verse 24 is an editorial comment upon marriage. It is not the words of Adam. His words are recorded in verse 23. It is the words of the editor. Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 and 5, Jesus says that it is the words of God that are being spoken here. Verse 24 is God's editorial comment on marriage. It is God who says, for this reason, marriage exists. 
So if we are to understand the reason, we need to look back into the events of the first day. Figure out what's going on. Verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good. It is not good. In chapter 1, repeatedly God says that His creation, each of the days of that creation, are good. It's a summary statement He makes at the end of each of the days. God saw what He had made and it was good, it says. It was good. Meaning that it fulfilled the purposes for which God had brought it into existence. Here, however, in the middle of the sixth day, God makes an evaluation of the creation at this point, and He says it is not good. Not yet. Not yet. God had created Adam, we learned earlier in the chapter, from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and Adam became a living being. God set Adam in the garden with a task. But until he forms the woman later in that day, things are not yet what they need to be. There is a deficiency, or as some have said, a problem in paradise. Now, I want to notice with you that the evaluation is God's, not man's. It is God who makes this statement. It is His evaluation. The Lord God said it is not good. The Hebrew accentuates this phrase, not good, by placing it at the beginning of the sentence. At the end of the sixth day, God will pronounce his creation, he'll be finished with it, and he'll pronounce it very good, chapter 1 and verse 31. But right now, the sixth day is not yet complete. There's more to be done, and at this point, it's not good. What's not good about it? Verse 18, it's not good because the man is alone. The man is alone. We can deduce two basic principles from this text. The first is that human beings are not designed to live in solitude. That is not God's intent and design to live in solitude. Now, it's interesting here because... At this point, Adam is not alone in the absolute sense, is he? Adam has a vertical relationship with God. He is in a subservient relationship to his creator. Adam also has a dominion relationship with the creation. So he has a relationship vertically with God and with creation itself. The not good part, if I can say it that way, is that they're lacking a horizontal relationship. That's what's missing. He lacks 
an equality relationship with another of his kind. That's what he's lacking. He is alone socially. He's alone socially. He lacks a life partner with whom he can fulfill the mandate of dominion for which he was created. Human beings are not designed to be to live in solitude. Second principle that we can derive from this is that animals are no substitute for human companionship. A dog is not man's best friend. I heard an amen to that. Notice, beginning in verse 19, Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field. This is looking backwards in time. Every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and every beast of the field. The idea is there is a great variety of animal life. And they, they are being brought to Adam and he's observing them and he's naming them. Notice what it says at the end of the verse. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. Adam is in authority over the creation. That's indicated by his naming of the creation. But he is alone socially. God translates this objective reality of aloneness into a personal sense of aloneness by setting Adam to the task. That's why I believe he brought the animals, verses 19 and 20, not all of them at this point, but representative animals, to Adam for Adam to begin the process of naming. This is Mr. and Mrs. Lion. This is, you know, if I try to give the actual names, you know what will happen, right? So there's a him and a her and 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 a him. Right? That's basically what happens. Basically what happens. In serving God, the man encounters his need. This is a teaching device. God's using this as a teaching device in order to arouse in Adam the awareness of his aloneness. The fact that he does not have a mate, a life partner, like all the rest. This, by the way, sets the stage for Adam to appreciate what God is about to do. It wasn't necessary. I mean, he could have just created Eve. But by doing it this way, he, he helps Adam to understand some of what it means that it's not good to be alone. This sets the stage for God to resolve the problem in paradise. 
And the way God will resolve it, back to verse 18, is that he will make a helper suitable for Adam. Now, this word helper is used frequently in the Old Testament to speak of God's relationship with Israel. He is the helper of Israel. It includes the idea of support and, and help. The helper, to be a helper, is not a demeaning term. God is not demeaned in any way to be known as the helper of Israel. It does define that first woman's purpose. She was created to help. She was created to supply what was lacking in Adam. She was created to be his counterpart. His counterpart. What he lacks, she supplies. Together, they carry out the dominion mandate. Chapter 1, verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Together. Together. She is suitable, it says, verse 18, chapter 2, suitable to him. This particular Hebrew word can be translated in a number of different ways. Perhaps your Bible says, either in the text itself or in the margin, corresponding to him. That would be a good way to translate the word. I will make a helper corresponding to him, like him. We could even say, I will make a helper like him. God created Eve, the first woman, so that she would exactly meet Adam's need. She is the perfect complement to him. And I may say this, I believe, that he to her. He to her. They correspond to each other. They're like each other. They help each other. How does this work? Well, how about mentally? Mentally. They share an intellect that that far exceeds the animal world. From that intellect come things like creativity, planning, purpose, ingenuity, to name just a few. She corresponds relationally. Together, they're able to converse. They are able to comfort one another. They're able to encourage one another. They're able to exhort one another. They're able to admonish one another. They're able to laugh together and cry together. They correspond relationally. They correspond spiritually. She is someone to pray with. She is someone to to sing with. She is someone to discuss God's word with. There is a spiritual correspondence. They correspond vocationally. 
She is necessary to fulfill the dominion mandate. Adam can't do it alone. She gives Adam both a reason to work hard, to care for her, and she aids him in that work. So there's a vocational correspondence going on. And there's a physical correspondence. They correspond physically. Together they are able to create life and to fulfill the command to multiply and fill the earth. Beyond that, she is, she is someone to, that corresponds to him sexually. She is one to, to rub his back, to hold his hand, to give him a hug, to kiss him, and he her. There's a correspondence that goes on. Now, we don't know what Adam's first words were. And the Bible doesn't record for us what were Adam's first words. But his first recorded words are something like this. Wow! Okay, that's kind of a vernacular translation. Verse 23. Okay? Eyes go bang. All right? Verse 22, the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. It's a picture that we repeat with great regularity every time we conduct a wedding ceremony, don't we? The bride comes down on the elbow of her father. He brings her to her husband-to-be. And the man says, verse 23, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. There's a, I think we get a sense of the animation of his, of his voice, Adam's voice in saying this. There, there's a grammatical marker here. It doesn't show up real well in the English. But three times is a pronoun used, this one. So more literally is, this one is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman because this one was taken out of man. You can just kind of see him pointing. It's a big deal. Finally, I now have a life partner. I have a life partner. Now, this expression, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, is, is not merely a statement about them sharing the same substance, same stuff. It's deeper than that. Yes, Eve is made out of the same stuff as Adam. But what's going on here is that he is actually making a covenant pledge to her. It is a covenant pledge of his commitment and loyalty and fidelity to her. I won't take the time to take you there, but you can just pencil in somewhere. 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 1, where the expression is used there in exactly that terminology. A covenant commitment of loyalty and fidelity. He's making a covenant commitment. So what's the takeaway? 
How do we principalize this? I want to suggest to you that the purpose of marriage for this reason that is given in verse 18 is that the purpose of marriage is companionship between a man and a woman. Companionship. This is the overarching purpose of marriage. Companionship. It is not a casual companionship, but it is a special companionship of the deepest nature. Deepest nature. And it is brought about by means of a a covenantal pledge of loyalty and fidelity. What is more implicit here becomes explicit later in the Old Testament. So let me take you to Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 17. Now, Proverbs chapter 2 here is, is the warning about the adulteress. It's written to young men to warn them about the adulteress. But in verse 17... It speaks about the adulteress. And in describing her, it says, She leaves the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. She leaves the companion. That's the man. He is her companion, and she leaves him, and in the process forgets the covenant, it says, of her God, the covenant she made before her God. Go to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, chapter 2. And verse 14. Malachi, chapter 2, and verse 14. We see the exact same concept there, although in this case it's the man who leaves his companion. So Proverbs 2.17, the woman has left her companion and forgotten the covenant that's been made. Here, the man leaves his companion and forgets the covenant that has been made. It says, The Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. She is your companion and your wife by covenant. So we see it in both Proverbs 2.17 and Malachi 2.14 in more explicit form what is here for us in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 23. A covenant of companionship. So that's how we can answer that first question. What is marriage all about? Marriage is a covenant of companionship. Marriage is a covenant of companionship between one man and one woman. Now, while God is not a party to the covenant, which means that there are no promises that are made to him or by him, only before him, he is a witness to the validity of the covenant. It is a covenant of companionship between a man and a woman made in the presence of God. 
That's what marriage is all about. Second question. What are the components of this covenant? It's a covenant of companionship. Well, what are its components? Again, back to Genesis chapter 2. We can derive them from this first marriage. There are two main aspects of the covenant of companionship. Here they are. Relational and sexual exclusivity. It is a covenant of companionship that is marked by two things. Sexual exclusivity and relational exclusivity. Let's take a look at the relational exclusivity. Back to verse 24, chapter 2 of Genesis. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. Now the verb leave is used frequently in the Old Testament to describe Israel's rejection of her covenant relationship with Yahweh. It's to walk away, that that verb is used, when she walks away from her God. Jeremiah 1, verse 16, you could check it out on your own. The other verb, to be joined, which is, has been traditionally translated to cleave, is a verb that, that designates maintenance of a covenant relationship. So, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 20, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and cling to him, there's the verb, and you shall swear by his name. Deuteronomy 11, verse 22, For if you are careful to keep all this commandment, which I am commanding you, to do it, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to hold fast to him. Same verb. So traditionally, we talk about leaving and cleaving, right? We like that because it rhymes. Okay? So you leave and you cleave. You are glued to each other. To leave father and mother and to be joined to your wife means that you sever one relationship and you establish another. That's the idea. You sever one, you establish another. That means that we can very rightly say that that marriage is to be more intimate and sacred than any other human relationship. It supersedes all others. To establish the covenant of companionship places this new relationship above all other human relationships. It is more significant than the relationship between a parent and a child. It is more significant than the relationship between the, the party and their parents. It is a priority relationship over friends. It is a priority relationship over family, extended family. It is a priority relationship over business associates. And it is even a priority relationship over church activities. It is the number one relationship. Leave and cleave. Sever one, establish the other. Beloved, we can very confidently say that in a marriage, your spouse should be your best friend. It should be the closest relationship you have. 
That's how God has designed it. Relational exclusivity. The other component of the covenant of companionship is sexual exclusivity. Verse 24 again, they shall become one flesh. They shall become one flesh. The idea is that they are to deem themselves as entirely and indissolvably united as if they were in reality one person. One soul, one body. That close. Now the oneness is pictured in the sexual union. The sexual union is the picture of the marriage. Sexual union does not create the marriage. It is a picture of the marriage. If God allows the couple to conceive children, then the birth of a child is is the literal sense in which to become one. The failure to maintain sexual exclusivity destroys the individuals and communities. And that's a novel concept for our world. The failure to maintain sexual exclusivity destroys individuals and communities. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Sexual sin is a very serious sin. It is not pure biology. It involves the mingling of two individuals. Douglas Wilson, in his good little book called Reforming Marriage, says the following, and I quote, The sexual union is such an an intimate aspect of our lives that it has to be protected if we are to be protected. It's a good quote. It is such an intimate aspect of who we are that it must be protected if, if we are to be protected. Sexual sin destroys individuals. But the sexual exclusivity of the marriage is not merely a private matter between two individuals. There is a corporate aspect as well. It's very apparent in the Old Testament that ancient Israel had a vested interest in the sexual exclusivity of the marriages in the nation. God makes it exceedingly plain. For example, in Leviticus chapter 18, God says there that the failure of the Canaanites to keep proper sexual boundaries is the reason why they were driven from the land. And he warns his people that if they fail in this matter as well, they too will be driven from the land. And we all know what happened. Sexual exclusivity is a community interest. The community has a vested interest in the fidelity of each and every marriage. That's the reason why marriages are celebrated as a community event. Did you ever think about that? It's a community event when 
a man and a woman get married. We invite our friends, we invite our family to attend our wedding ceremony and to witness what? Our vows. Our vows. Whereby we enter into a covenant of companionship. What that means is that, is that the community at large has a, has a vested interest in your marriage. Let me just draw it down tight. What that means is that this body has a vested interest in your marriage. And as a member of this body, you have a vested interest in everybody else's marriage. It's not just a private thing. It's public. Loss of relational exclusivity is what destroys a marriage. The loss of sexual exclusivity is a result of the former. Mark it down. It is the loss of relational exclusivity that actually destroys the marriage. The loss of the sexual exclusivity is merely an outgrowth of the former. That means that we have a vested interest in the relational exclusivity of each other's marriage. At some level, in some way, you have an interest in my marriage. How's it going? And I have an interest in yours. And you with each other. Third question, can the covenant be broken? What is marriage? We said it is a covenant of companionship. What are the components of the covenant? They are relational exclusivity and sexual exclusivity. Third question, can the covenant be broken? Now, the question is not should the covenant be broken. The question is can the covenant be broken? The answer to the question is yes. The answer to the question is yes. Since marriage is a human covenant made between a man and a woman, it can be severed by either death or divorce. It can be severed by either death or divorce. Jesus says in Matthew 22... When he is, the Sadducees come to him, right? They're trying to trip him up about the resurrection and so forth. And they paint this scenario about this woman who was married repetitively. You remember? And then they say, she finally dies. Whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? And Jesus says, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Meaning the marriage does not continue into the eternal state. It is a temporal human covenant that ends this side of the grave. Paul in Romans chapter 7 and verse 2 says there that death ends the covenant. 
And the party is free to remarry if they choose. But only in the Lord. So it's without question, death severs the covenant. It's not an eternal covenant. You're not still married in heaven. Now that's hard to try to figure out. What we have to assume is that what God has in store for us there is so much better than anything here. And even the best of marriages will pale in comparison to the presence of God in the eternal state. But marriage can also be severed by divorce. John chapter 4 don't turn there. But John chapter 4, I have it up on the screen for you, verses 16 through 18. This is Jesus' confrontation with a woman at the well in Samaria. And he said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband. For you, and notice these words, have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have truly said. I bring this to you because I want you to see that Jesus acknowledges she has had five husbands. That means she has been married five times. Each time she has a husband. Divorce severs the covenant. Marriage establishes another one. Beloved, it is God's design, it is God's intention that a man and a woman, when they wed, enter into a lifetime commitment, a covenant of companionship that lasts a lifetime, severed only at death. Paul says in Ephesians that that beautifully portrays the relationship of Christ and his church. There's a picture. By his grace, that ideal is achievable. It is. But we live in a fallen world. And in a fallen world, sin frequently bends, breaks, or destroys that which God desires. The devastation of that sin is is not confined just to marriage. It, It hits us at every aspect of life, doesn't it? We desperately need the redemptive grace of Christ at every place, at every turn. And it is available to us through the cross. We will come to the cross. So what I want to say to you is if if you have experienced the devastation of sin in the marital realm, there is hope for you at the cross of Christ. Full and complete pardon. All the guilt, all of the hurts, Christ will deal with. 
Now, old sin casts long shadows. It doesn't mean that every single bent nail will be straightened out, if you know what I mean. But there is full forgiveness. There is full pardon. There is a release in which you can enjoy the presence of your Savior just as much as anyone else who has not had sin in this aspect of their life, but has had an an equally devastating sin in some other. See, this room is filled with people who are broken by sin. Isn't that true? We have all experienced its pain, its devastation. And thus we are all in need of Christ. None stands any taller than the other. May you know the healing grace of of God in Christ as we pursue this series together. Maybe there's some old stuff out there that's been kind of hanging on. May God grant you deliverance, full and free. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of marriage. It is indeed one of the good gifts that you have given to your children, to the creation that that you spoke into existence. And our Father, marriage can be such a delight. By your grace, as we walk in the Spirit and fulfill the covenant of of companionship with each other, we can know great joy. And yet, our Father, the world, the flesh, and the devil wage war against us. And there are none of us here who are immune. There is not a marriage in this room that has not felt the pain of sin and is not threatened by it. Whether that marriage is a a few months old or 50 years old, sin is always lurking, seeking to destroy. We need the cross of Christ. We need the grace of Jesus every day. And Father, for those who have experienced its pain, a divorce somehow either personally or in a close relationship, has really been devastating. I pray for your grace and mercy for them as well. Oh, Lord, it it causes our hearts to long for the return of Christ. When sin will be dealt with, Messiah will rule. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. God bless you, beloved. If you have questions, send me an email or send me a text.